Today, I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, fatherhood, and I want to just give a few qualifying comments before I begin. <laughs> no, it's okay. You wear that, Barry, because in your dominion, that is true. Amen. First thing I want to say is this. Um, whenever I talk about, you know, a Father's Day message, a Mother's Day message, you know, there can be a tendency of other people to feel it's not for them. It's kind of funny, when we did the series, not this winter, but the winter before, and we did the real life in 90 days, we had people that, you know, when we did a whole section for a couple weeks on parenting, people that weren't parents yet who said, well, you know, I kind of zoned out because it didn't apply to me. I'm like, well, do you plan on being a parent someday? Well, yeah, then it applies to you. Sit down and pay attention. Because <laughs> I don't want you coming around saying, I need help. Well, I told you everything you needed to know, you know, three years ago, four years ago, but you weren't paying any attention. <laughs> you know, and the principles are principles, right? And so this morning, there are principles of fatherhood that are, are, relate to us and our Heavenly Father. They relate to us and, and, and as mothers. They relate to us as spiritual fathers and mothers. So there may be some things I say today that are particularly poignant for uh, fathers here today. But I want you to understand that there isn't anything here that cannot be applied to every life in this place. Everybody say, every life. That means me. That means me. Amen. So, Father, I just ask for your grace today. Father, that you'd help us. Uh, Lord, as we journey through your word today, Father, we ask you to give us grace. Father, to receive, ears to hear. Father, our mind to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you about legacy today. And I've talked about this once before, I think about four or five years ago. But, you know, we're talking about inheritance, so this is just all part of it. So I thought, we're talking about inheritance right now. We, I need to go here. And uh, this, is, this is a really important uh, message for us today. Uh, you know, any kingdom, whether it's, a, you know, any monarchy on earth, is built on legacy. What one king or queen hands down to the next, to the next, to the next, is legacy. And so when I use the word legacy, you know, we have to understand in that context, this is about uh, what I am as a person leaving behind. You know, if you were to look legacy up in the dictionary, it would say, in law, it's a gift of property, uh, especially personal property as money by will or, or bequest. It would also say anything handed down from the past, as from an ancestor or predecessor. That kind of opens the door for good or evil, right? So, legacy then is about something that we leave behind after we're gone. Now, I know I'm going to live forever with the Lord Jesus Christ, but my presence here on earth is not going to last forever. It's going to last a ripe old time, let me tell you, and I'm going to see my children's children, my children's children's children, and so on. But let me tell you that all of us have an expiry date on this physical tent in its present form. And when that expiry date is reached, then the Bible says we inherit a spiritual body from the Lord, right? One that's going to not wear out, one that's not got an expiry date on it, and that we will rule and reign with him forever. How many know that's going to be a good thing, right? Uh, but in the meantime, uh, as I walk in this tent in its present situation, there are things that I can do that empower me to leave good stuff behind, right? 
I want to leave good things behind. I don't know about you, but that's important to me. Turn the person beside you and say, what's your legacy going to be? What's your legacy going to be? Well, I want to talk about three kinds of legacy today. Three kinds of legacy. Everybody say three. three. So I'm going to get you to repeat a lot today because I don't have a screen to rely on. So you're going to have to bear with me here. So everybody say three. three. Everybody say? One. Number one. Oh, we're going we're gonna to play charades here. Number one. Sounds like. Uh, anyway, uh, the first legacy I want to talk about was the obvious one from our definition there, and that's financial legacy. The definition said, in law, a legacy is a gift of property, especially personal money, property as money or, or land or whatever by will, a bequest. So are we leaving a legacy? More specifically, are we leaving a financial inheritance behind us after we go? Now, as faith-filled, charismatic believers, we love to quote Scripture, and we love to apply Scripture to our life. One of my favorite scriptures is Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. Proverbs 13, 22, and I hear it quoted all the time. It says, uh, the wealth of the wicked or the sinner is stored up for the righteous. How many have heard that verse before? Right? How many have heard us quote it before? I'm sure you have. I've heard myself quote it before, so uh, I'm sure you guys heard it. Barry, you've quoted that before, right? Once or twice. Exactly. And I love that passage. It's a, it's a biblical promise, Right? Uh, and it's one of my favorite declarations in the Scripture uh, from the Lord. And, and I think it's for me. Is it for you? It's for me. So I read that and I go, that's for me. Uh, and that promise is that the wealth uh, is being stored up, even in the hands of the wicked, it's being stored up for the righteous. And we love to quote our, that verse. But do you ever ask yourself, well, how do you define righteous? Who's the righteous that the money is being stored up for? Who's the righteous? The answer is actually found in the verse, right? It's actually found in the verse. Because the verse actually says, but the wealth of the sinner uh, or the wicked is stored for the righteous. There's the word but in there. And when there's a but in there, it means there's something that comes before it, right? Everybody know that? When you see a but there, it's called a, a conjunctive word, right? When you see that and, but, that kind of thing, when you see that, it means there's something that came before it. So if we're going to look at that verse, we need to look at Proverbs 13, 22. What comes before that statement is extremely important. And here's what it says. The beginning of verse 22 says this. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the wealth of the winner, sinner I should say, or the wicked, is stored up for the righteous. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. But the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. That's what the verse says. That's the whole verse. We like to pull the second half out and go, oh, that's exciting. All that wealth being stored up for me. But who's it being stored up for? A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now, for those who haven't had your coffee yet this morning, that's your grandchildren. Just to help you out with that. If you haven't had enough caffeine yet this morning, that is your grandchildren. And uh, I remember, you know, Wayne Levy uh, talking to me a few years ago, about, and he reads a lot of stuff on uh, family traditions and stuff in Jewish culture. And he said he got it from a website. I was asking him this week, uh, was it from a book that he lent me? And he said, no, it's not in that book, but I, I, I got it from a Jewish website. But uh, you ever notice that, that Jews are inordinately prosperous? They've comprised 0.01% of the world's population. 0.01. They are over, uh, over 30 or 40% of the owners of Fortune 500 companies. They are uh, the holders of over 25% of the Nobel Scientific Prizes. Hello? 
And yet, they comprise a small little portion of the world's population. And there's a number of things as you begin to delve into their culture that create inheritance and, and legacy in their family. A number of things. And one of the things that Wayne told me about was that in their tradition, what happens is that when uh, your sons or your, uh, are getting ready uh, or your daughters to buy their first home, to get a home, that the money for, for at least the down payment, sometimes for the whole thing, depending on how prosperous the family you come from is, is loaned to them by their grandparents. And it's loaned interest-free to the grandparents, by the grandparents to the grandchildren. But then the grandchildren pay it back to their parents. Let that settle in for a minute. See, many of you think, I don't know how I can help my kids get into a house because we're still paying our own mortgage. Exactly. But when your grandparents, if you've done this financial planning thing right, you have the money to pay forward now to your grandkids. They can pay it back to mom and dad, thus causing mom and dad's wealth to grow faster. And then guess what they'd then be able to do? Lend to your kids. You see what this is going? And this cycle of skipping that generation, but then paying it back a generation, skipping a generation, paying it back a generation, has enabled them over hundreds of years to build incredible family security and wealth. Well, I want my kids to learn how to do it on their own. I had to scrape and do it on my own. I want them to do it on their own. Now, there's some value to that. That's why if you happen to buy lottery tickets and you win $30 million, don't go giving it to your kids. Not yet. Hello? Save it as that legacy to be able to pay forward. Let them go out and build a career and have to do all that kind of stuff. And now you're empowered to help them in that process, but don't take them out of that process. Are you hearing me? You can help them in the process, but don't take them out of the process. Don't allow them to sit around as entitled brats. Just saying. Just saying. That's, that's the way it works. But they've been able to build generational wealth this way. Generational wealth. We need to start learning, uh, and, and I think the reason they do this is because they take this scripture literally. I believe the Jews read this proverb, and they say, a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. Oh, then I should do that. And as they leave it to their grandchildren, they said, now when you pay that back, pay it back to your mom and dad. And when you pay it back to mom and dad, they'll be able to do it for your kids. And you see how that works? And it means that when you need the money the least, you have it to pay forward to those who need it the most. And you avoid that evil beast called interest. Wow, that's good stuff. So, what's the scripture really saying? It's saying the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the man or the woman who leaves an inheritance for their grandchildren. That's what this verse is saying. If you're going around claiming the wealth of the wicked to be transferred to you, the scripture, it actually says it's being stored up for those who leave an inheritance for their children's children. That's what it's being stored up for. So, you need to do what? Build an inheritance for your children's children. If you focus on that and you're doing that, now God is able to start transferring the wealth of the, of the wicked to you. Because you are a person who's going to get involved in that process of paying it forward a couple generations, investing in your, your grandchildren, building them. Are you hearing me this morning? And that is how it works. I think the Jewish culture took that literally and look at the prosperity they have experienced as a result of it. Now, it's hard for us to grasp because we today live in a world of debt. 
I experienced a little bit of depression this week. It's true. I went on to the Canadian debt clock. You ever check out the debtclock.ca? I shouldn't have done that. That was... You know, the worst one was our provincial debt clock. I went to our provincial debt clock. Did you know that our province is going $1,000 in debt every second? You can go on the clock and you watch it every second. $1,000 every second. Tap the person beside you and say, that's every second. That's, that's 60000 a minute. Are you hearing me this morning? It shocked me. I watched that thing. I was like, oh. Our province, provincial debt is $311,653 billion. $311 billion. $311 billion, $653 million debt. That's what our debt is. Now, you know, I said, well, that's because of those liberals. Part of it's because of the liberals. But guess what? They've all been doing it. All right? It's not a political statement. This is a statement of fact. Our deficit, the amount we added to our debt last year was $12 billion. So that's called, how many of us bad financial planning? If you're already in debt and you add that much more debt, right? That's what a deficit is, just in case some of you don't, aren't familiar with the terms. Deficit is how much more debt you're adding. It's not your debt. It's your, the amount you're going to add this year. So we are deficit financing as a country, and we're deficit financing as a province. But our provincial situation is way worse than our federal one. It's ghastly. It's ghastly. Ontario has the largest regional debt in the world. Did you hear that this morning? Everybody say, in the world. Well, I heard the state of California was worse. Nope, 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 nope. Ours is bigger than theirs, and they have ten times the population. Well, maybe not 10 times, but they have about 35 million. They have the population of Canada in the state of California. Yeah. Are you hearing me? This is staggering stuff, folks. Uh, Ontario's debt is the same as British Columbia, Alberta, and Quebec's combined. And yet their population is 3 million more, and their GDP is 20% higher. It's going to give you some more stats here if you want to get really thoroughly depressed this morning. Ontario's debt is larger than the GDP. Everybody knows what that is. That's how much a country produces, gross domestic product. Uh, Ontario's debt is larger than the D GDP of 75% of the countries in the world. So in other words, you, you can take any, any of these 75 countries and what they generate, their entire uh, economy generates in a year is less than our debt. If, if the country of Jamaica was to get benevolent and say, we're going to take everything that we make as a country this year because we're concerned about Ontario and we're going to give it to Ontario to pay down their debt, it would only cancel 6% of our debt. Really? Wow. But you know what? That's okay, though, because debts aren't really a problem. Uh, you know, we have these debts... I realize personally it may affect you, but and there is this theory out there that debt governments can hand debt and they don't need to worry about debt. And there's some truth to that. You know, governments have operated with debts for a long, long time. This is not a new phenomenon. And we we borrow money so that we can pour it into fiscal things, so that projects, government services, etc., so we can build a healthy economy, we can build a healthy infrastructure. It becomes a problem when servicing the debt becomes a very large line item. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does everybody get that? 
So, for example, uh, I had the graph here, but I can't show it to you. But in Ontario, the fourth largest line item in our budget is, is interest. This year, we paid $12.3 billion in interest. And that's at relatively uh, historically low interest rates. $12.3 billion. Now, to put that in perspective, that is actually half of the amount of money that was spent on education in this province. We spent roughly $24 billion or so on education. So we have 1.9 million students in Ontario in the public education system. That means that the amount we paid in interest was enough to send 1 million of them to school and to cover their costs. That's how much we're spending servicing debt. So now it's becoming a problem. It's not just that we have the debt, but servicing the debt is starting to seriously affect the way that we can do things. $12.3 billion, that's a billion dollars a month. How many know we could build a lot of new schools for a billion dollars a month? Are you hearing me? These are staggering numbers. Huge, in fact. Huge. Everybody say huge. Is it possible that as a province, the only financial gift that we plan on leaving to our children's children, the only legacy is debt? Now, we're not the most indebted nation in the world. We're ninth, I think, or tenth or something like that. The worst is Japan. Japan is even worse than Greece. Greece Greece's national debt is 187% of their GDP. So that means that they owe more than they produce in, in almost two years. But Japan's national debt is 237% of their GDP. That means it takes two and a half years of what the nation of Japan produces. You know, all your cars and your all that stuff and everything. What that produces is, is you know, it would, it's like two, almost two and a half times uh, what they produce. How many know that's a big debt? They say, well, then how come Japan's still surviving and yet Greece is, everybody talks about their bankruptcy. Well, here's the difference. Japan's debt is to themselves. Almost all of their debt is secured in bonds to their own selves, to their own people. Whereas Greece's debt is largely to Germany and the rest of the Eurozone. Do you see the difference in that? So Japan's been lending money through, through savings bonds to themselves, getting it from the public, and then they're paying it back to their own people, which is helping to keep a circular debt situation. But they also know that by the year 20, uh, I think it's 2040, they're going to be in serious trouble if they don't turn it around because they're going to be incapable of making their payments to their bonds, to their own people. How many know there might be a few riots in the street at that point? Maybe some of you are going, what's this got to do with anything? Who cares? Well, I care. Because I have grandchildren. And I want my grandchildren to inherit a different province than we have today. And you say, but it's impossible to pay these things down. That's not true. When Jean Chrétien was prime minister, came in, I think, in 1988 or 89, uh, and, and he did very poorly at, at first. Now, he could say they always like to blame the government before them, etc. But by 1996, uh, Canada's debt reached its highest point in history, $655 billion. But Chrétien started to turn around. And then this guy and his finance minister, Paul Martin, who came after him, worked really hard at it. And they paid off over $100 billion of debt. Not, they actually balanced the budget and paid off debt. And then when Harper came in, they continued to pay off debt. 
And they paid off debt until 2008 when the global economy went, and then they started borrowing again. And they borrowed in order to keep Canada's economy. And you'll notice we didn't really suffer too much in Canada compared to the U.S. and other countries because of a lot of factors around mortgages and how we lend money and all the rest of it, but also because of some of the plans that the government had in terms of investing and borrowing, et cetera. But the unfortunate thing is that we're continuing to do it now. We, we don't need to be doing this stimulus stuff anymore, but we're continuing to do it. And so the debt is climbing, and within a couple years, it'll reach its highest point ever, 700 and some billion dollars. We've got to stop it, folks. We, we've proven we can, you can pay this thing down. The plan they were on, if the, if the collapse hadn't happened in 08, they may have been able to pay off our debt in like 10, 11 years. So it can be done. It can be done. And when you're not servicing debt, if we weren't servicing this debt in Ontario, we'd have enough to build a new high school and then some every month. Could you imagine that? When you're not paying interest, you got money. You got money. All right, enough financial stuff about now that everybody's thoroughly depressed. Let me just give you this quote. All the talk of temporary this and temporary that is bunk. Our prolonged deficits crowd out private investment, permanently increase the size of government, and ultimately increase taxes to pay for it all. Over the long term, hear this quote this morning. Over the long term, it is a form of fiscal child abuse, making those who have no say pay for services they never used. Can I repeat that for you? It's a form of fiscal child abuse, making those who have no say pay for services they never used. I'll just let that sit in for a minute. So, folks... It's up to us to set a different standard. Dads, can I talk to you today? We've got to turn this thing around. We haven't even talked about personal debt yet, which is at some all-time highs. It's time for us to tighten our belt, live within the means, live within our means. Everybody say, live within your means. And establish plans that will see us leaving a financial inheritance for our grandchildren. Then, then God's going to transfer the wealth of the wicked to us. Why not until then? Because then we've proven and demonstrated that we know what to do with it. Hello? Then we've shown this thing called stewardship. We know what to do with it. God says, I can give it to you. You ever wonder why in the parable of the talents, you know, that he hands them out, he gives out five, and he gives out two, and he gives out one, right? And then when he comes back, the one who uh, had five gathered ten. So the, he said, the Bible says, depending on which gospel we're reading, he gave him ten cities. And the one who had twos came back and said, I got four. He said, here's four cities. And then the guy who had one, he, he buried it. You never wonder why, why didn't he give the guy four ten cities? Because he demonstrated that if you are a good steward, then God can give you more. And then he says this really peculiar verse in there. He says, to those who have, even more will be given to them. But those who have not, who have not even what they have will be taken away. That's a mind-blowing verse. To those who have, in other words, to those who steward it well, to them will be given even more. But to those who will not steward it, even what they have, it will be taken away. And boy, does that happen every day in our world around us. Wow. Okay. All right, so how do we do this? Stop living on credit. Pay off our debt. Adopt biblical principles of finance. My wife and I... Ever since we basically got married, uh, we, we've tithed first 10% to the Lord, second 10% to, to our investment, to us. 
whether it's a pension fund, if you don't have a pension fund, RSPs or whatever, and you live off 80. Period. Not open for discussion. That's how you live. You do that your whole life, you'll retire, and you'll have no problem. Don't do it. Don't expect the government's money to be there for you. That's going to run out. How many say, I know, run out? Because you look on your, your little uh, uh, paycheck and see how little money actually goes out for CPP. If what you're paying into your CPP is actually going to pay for your retirement, <laughs> not going to happen. Not gonna, it ain't enough for you to retire on. And you're already paying in less than you're drawing from it. So somebody's going to be left holding the bag on that. Right? Am I making any sense to anybody here? So, first 10%, we return to the Lord. I'll talk more about that in the fall. Second 10%, we invest in ourselves. And then we live off the 80. We've been doing that for years. Years and years and years and years and years. And then we live off the rest. That's what I actually live off. And you have to train yourself that way. So when you go in and you're buying a house, how much house can you afford? Well, forget the first 20. You've got to live off that 80. So your mortgage is based off the 80, not off the 100. Don't let the banks fool you when they say, well, you can afford this. They love to keep you in debt because that's how they make money. So don't listen to their lies. You plan your finances and you tell your money where to go and you tell yourself how much you can afford. Okay. All right. Well, my wife and I were in uh, Vancouver Island in May. Beautiful island. Never been there before. And we were walking through the woods through a place called Cathedral Grove. It's in the, kind of in the center of the island. How many have ever been there before? It's where all the old wood growth is, right? These trees you can't even wrap your hands around. They're just massive, some of those trees. And they haven't cut them down. Most of the, there's some they say are over 800 years old, but they said most are about 300 and some. There was a forest fire that went through about 300 and you know, so odd years ago and, and killed a lot of it. So they, they, can, they know how old they are you know, and calculate their age, cut, count rings or however they do that. And that's about how old those trees are. Well, we're walking through, and, and I so want to be able to put it up on the screen today, but my wife and I are walking through, and I'm one of those nerdy people that reads all those interactive displays they put out. If you're vacationing with me, you got to deal with it. That's how I am. That's how I swing. I love history, and I lo love all the nerdy information. I, I can't help myself. I have to stop and read them. My wife actually stopped at this one first. I've got her trained now. She stops and reads all these things, too. So she stops. She's like, look at this one. And I get up there, and I'm like, oh, oh, my. Whoo, Hello. And you know what? And I don't have it written down here. I only have it on my computer screen because I thought I was going to have it up there. So I want to make sure I get it right. Let me hear. Let me make sure I get it worded exactly right because I don't want you to misquote me here. But this was on their park. Uh, and uh, here we are. All right, let me bring this down here. All right. And this was it. And it's so applicable to what I'm talking about this morning that it blows the mind, all right? And this is what it said on this wonderful plaque. It has a picture of the forest and a, uh, what looks like a, a grandpa walking with a child together, and it says this. It says, we do not inherit the earth from our grandparents. We borrow it from our children. Let me say that again. We don't inherit the earth from our grandparents. We borrow it. Everybody say borrow. We borrow it from our children. 
Now, that's talking about the earth, and it's talking about environmental things, but can I submit to you this morning that that's even more true financially? That when you think about a financial legacy, when you think about all the government spending and the stuff that's being done in our culture right now, all the entitlements and everything else that we're walking with, you are literally not inheriting all that from your grandparents, you're borrowing that from your children. That many of the things that we're demanding and many of the things that are raising taxes and making it impossible for the government to pay for it, we're doing that at our grandchildren and our children's expense. We're borrowing from their future. Help me, Jesus. This truth is true about the planet. I hate people littering. I get really mad when people litter. I see somebody throw something out of the car, I want to pull them over, knock them into the ditch, make them go back and pick it up. I just, you know, it's like, come on. What kind of a person are you to throw that thing out the window? And I, I, I've traveled a lot of places in the world, and I, I'm going to be honest with you, Canada is the cleanest country I've been in. It is wonderful to drive down our roads and to see hardly any garbage on the side of the road. It's awesome. It's awesome. We've drank the Kool-Aid. We've done whatever is required to get that. That's good. We can do even better. We can do even better. However, the planet is here to serve us, not the other way around. So I think the greatest resource we have is people. And we need to do an even better job for our children and our children's children. Am I making any sense to anybody today? All right. I'm going to move from finances. I'm going to move on to integrity. Let me read you a few passages here this morning. Job chapter 27 verse 5 says, I will never admit you are in the right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. Talking to his accusers who were telling Job that he was wrong. He said, I will not do that. I will not deny my integrity. Psalm 25 verse 21. My integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Psalm, that was Psalm 25 21. Proverbs 10 verse 9. The man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. Ouch! That was Proverbs 10.9. Proverbs 11, verse 3. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Proverbs 11.3. Proverbs 13, verse 6. Righteousness guards the man of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. How many know there's some stuff to be said about integrity here? My wife and I, uh, we tell people all this all the time because I think it's true, is uh, if you want to know what a guy's really like, girls, if you're, you're, you're dating this guy and you want to know what he's really like, should you marry him or not, go watch him play sports. Playing sports does not build character, it reveals it. <laughs> Hello! I've seen guys that, oh, praise the Lord, pass the peanut butter out in the ice. Just the most vile stuff comes out of their mouth and their behavior, and they're acting like absolute idiots. I know I've played every kind of Christian sport you can imagine, and I walked around half the time embarrassed. When I was younger, embarrassed by my own behavior, and as I got older, embarrassed by everybody else's. Because as I got older, I was like, I'm convicted of the Lord to not be that person. Somebody say amen. I remember when I first moved to Belleville here, first time I went to play hockey uh, at Calvert Temple. I was the youth pastor there, and, 
and we go out on the ice. First game, not making this up, first game, bench-clearing brawl. I am the only guy who doesn't engage in it. I just turned around and skated off the ice. One of the guys on our team comes off the ice. I'm already half undressed and everything comes off the ice because the ref just threw everybody off the ice. Said the game's over. Get it. Get. You're all idiots. Get. So one of the guys comes into the dressing room and goes, what's wrong with you? You afraid to fight? And the guy who was our coach said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me to actually say that? What business have any of you got fighting out there? Hello? But the ref made a bad call. I don't care. It's a hockey game. <laughs> and you're not even getting paid to play. Like, what does it really matter? Oh, my word. It was embarrassing. Being a man of integrity is difficult. But it's a tremendous legacy to be modeled and imparted to our sons and our daughters. In our self-absorbed world, few people give thought to how their actions affect other people. People say it all the time. Well, does it feel right? I don't care how it feels. Is it right? Is the question. I hear people say to me all the time, well, I'm walking out of my marriage because I'm just not happy. I'm just not happy, Pastor. I'm not happy. You know what that statement reveals to me? It's the idea that your happiness is more important than that of your children and your wife's. Now, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. That, that translates into a simple, single word, selfishness. It's at the very center of all disputes in human relationship, marriage or otherwise. Everybody say, selfishness. See, here's the thing. I got a newsflash for you. It's not about you. Hello? Have I always been happy in my marriage? Nope. There are days that I woke up and I thought, that woman. Oh. Like last night, okay? She was. <laughs> she doesn't even know about this. Last night. I've been limping around because I hurt my foot last Saturday, and uh, I bruised my heel, so I've been walking. I'm even wearing running shoes today because I couldn't even wear my dress shoes. That's how much it hurts. Yeah, you notice that first time. I'm wearing running shoes because I couldn't even wear my dress shoes. So anyhow, so last night, last night, I, I got finished building this gate out in the backyard, so I, I'm in the bedroom just, I'd taken a shower, and I'm kind of just laying down trying to cool off, and then I decide, you know, I'll, I'm going to go to my office and work for a little bit. So I'm in the office. While I'm in the office, she turns the lights all out in the hall. She goes into the bedroom, right? So, so anyway, okay. So, you know, I turn the light off my office. I go to walk into, into the bedroom, and in the hall, I trip over the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I pretty near broke my toe on the vacuum cleaner. I, I'm like, oh, like this. And I'm, I turn around, what's the vacuum doing in the middle of the hall? I think my, I know I'm worth more dead than alive, but there's other ways to get the money. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so I did what any reasonable man would do. I just left it there. <laughs> I just left it there. I, I said, I'm not bailing this one out. Uh, anyway. Do you understand? Uh, so obviously, you're, you're all going to have days. Like, you're going to go, oh, my goodness. 
ladies are going to go, your head's got to be made of cement. Guys are going to go, is there something wrong with you? Are you, you know, what's going on in your mind? But you know what? Love is not about, uh, you know, my happiness. It's about my wife's happiness and my children's happiness. It's about their joy. It's about making their life complete, not my life complete. And if both spouses are walking that way and operating that way, you got a lot of grace for tripping over vacuums in the middle of the night. <laughs> you hear me? Just the way it is, people. Just the way it is. Character is about doing the right thing, not the thing that feels right to you at the time. The right thing. There are rights and wrongs. There are absolutes. The right thing. We do the right thing. No matter how it makes us feel, we do the right thing. We are a feelings-based culture, so this message is just going to drive people right nutty. But it's the truth. It's time to forget those stupid feelings. The Bible says your, your feelings are, 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 your heart is desperately wicked. And, and your, in other words, your feelings are, are evil. Your feelings are playing with you all the time. It says, who can trust it? The Bible's pretty smart. Knows what it's talking about. There are many times doing the right thing doesn't feel good. But we do it because it's the right thing. It's the right thing to keep our commitments and our vows. It's the right thing to accept responsibility and not pass the buck. That's why I left the vacuum there for her to pick up herself. <laughs> it's the right thing to love unconditionally without expectation of return. It's the right thing to live justly, the right thing to be merciful, the right thing to exercise humility, the right thing to place the needs of others ahead of our own. So we need to be dads, we need to be moms of character and integrity. We need to do the right thing. Do the right thing. That's how you leave a great legacy for your children. They, uh, Andrew Carnegie said, as I grow older, I pay less attention to what people say. I just watch what they do. Ouch. Finally, let me just summarize by talking about spiritual legacy. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul said this, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul understood something about leaving spiritual legacy. He was talking about passing stuff on to other generations. Let me say to you dads here today and moms, you were meant to leave a Jesus legacy on earth. God designed your life so you can have meaning beyond your days here on earth, and you do that by leaving a Jesus legacy. God uses the longing in you to, build a, uh, to have something live on past you to get you to direct you towards spiritual legacy. Because i got to tell you, even if you leave your your grandchildren uh, a financial legacy, if you don't leave them a spiritual legacy, it's, it's a waste of time. Because they will take that money and squander it on themselves rather than making their world a better place. God's entrusted you with good news and he trusts you to intentionally pass it on to others, who in turn will pass it on to others, who in turn will pass it on to others. What does that look like? What does that consist of? Well, how do I do that? Let me tell you how. The stories of how you responded to life's difficulties, share them with your kids. My kids know my journey to Christ. They know about my days doing drugs and all that kind of stuff. I shared that to show them how Christ changed my life, and the dad you see is not the guy he was, right? Uh, let your kids see you celebrate other people's blessings. 
Don't let your kids hear you sit around the table and, and gripe about other people being blessed. Come on. Don't do that. Let your kids see how you worship. You know, you want your kids to love the Lord, come to church, worship the Lord, and you sit here like this all the time? Don't do it. Set the example. Let them see how you pray. Let them see that you made a difference in other people's lives. Let them see how you conquered your own bad attitudes and habits. Your kids should see a a progression in your life. My kids will tell you when I was, they were younger, I had a worse temper than I have now. It's true. I did things when I would, they were younger and, and got angry working on stuff and things that right now, now it just, I get angry still, but it just kind of rolls off of me. I think the angriest I got in years was putting together that lamp last night, uh, last year in the front yard. I, I think I, I cursed manufacturing in China for at least an hour. Why do we import all that stuff from China? It's not made well, you know, and I had every rant you could think of, but you know. Let your kids see how you've handled disappointments. Let them see how you talk to other people. Let them see how you treat your family and others' families. Let them be witness to this. What kind of a legacy will you leave? Depends on how transparent you are about these things and what kind of progress you're making. Your kids will have a lot of grace for you as long as you're working at it. You've got to be growing. You've got to be moving in the right direction. You don't have to be perfect. you just got to be moving in the right direction. And when you blow it with them, own it. Don't say, well, it's your fault because you made me mad. They may have made you mad. But the only reason they're able to make you mad is because you still have a temper. So own it. Hello. All right, let me conclude. I'm going to conclude two stories here. You may have heard these before because I shared them once before. But they're worth sharing. Many years ago, Al Capone virtually owned Chicago. Capone wasn't famous for anything heroic. He was notorious for enmeshing the Windy City and everything from bootleg booze prostitution to murder. Capone had a lawyer, and his name was Easy Eddie, and he was his lawyer for a good reason. Eddie was very good. In fact, Eddie's skill at legal maneuvering kept Big Al out of jail for a long time. To show his appreciation, Al Capone paid him very well. Not only was the money big, but also Eddie got special dividends. For instance, he and his family occupied a fenced-in mansion with live, uh, live-in, I should say, help And all the conveniences of the day, the estate was so large it filled an entire Chicago city block. Eddie lived the high life of the Chicago mob, and he gave little consideration to the atrocities that went on around him. Eddie did have one soft spot. He had a son that he loved dearly. And Eddie saw to it that his son had clothes, cars, a good education. Nothing was withheld. Price was no object. And despite his involvement with organized crime, Eddie even tried to teach him right from wrong. Eddie wanted his son to be a better man than he was. How many want that? Yet, with all his wealth and influence, there were two things that he couldn't give his son. A good name and a good example. So one day, Easy Eddie reached a difficult decision. Easy Eddie wanted to rectify the wrongs he'd done. He decided he would go to the authorities and tell the truth about Al Scarface Capone. He would clean up his tarnished game and offer his son some semblance of integrity. So to do this, he would have to testify against the mob, and he knew that this would cost him a lot. It would be great. So he testified. Within a year, Easy Eddie's uh, life ended in a blaze of gunfire in a Chicago street. But in his eyes, he had given his son the greatest gift he had to offer, at the greatest price that he could ever pay. Police removed from his pockets a rosary, a crucifix, a religious medallion, and a poem clipped from a magazine. And this is what the poem said. The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. 
Now is the only time you own, live, love, toil with a will. Place no faith in time, for the clock may soon be still. That's the first story I want to tell you. Second one is this. World War II produced a lot of heroes, but one of them was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. He was a, a fighter pilot assigned to the aircraft carrier Lexington in the South Pacific. One day, his entire squadron was sent on a mission, and as he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge, and he realized that someone had forgotten the top of his fuel tank. He would not have enough fuel to complete his mission and get back to his ship. His flight leader told him to return to the carrier, so reluctantly, he dropped out of formation, and he headed back to the aircraft carrier. As he was returning to the ship, he saw something turned his blood cold. A squadron of Japanese aircraft were heading in his direction and eventually would reach the fleet. The American fighters were gone on their sortie, and he couldn't get them back to join him in time. The fleet was defenseless, and he couldn't warn them because he would give away their position. So he had to deal with the approaching danger himself. He must somehow divert that fleet of aircraft, laying aside all thought for his personal safety. So he dove into the formation of the Japanese planes, his 50 caliber guns blazing as he charged in, attacking one surprise enemy plane after another. He wove in and out of the broken formation, fired as many planes as he could until he ran out of ammunition. Then undaunted, he continued the assault. He dove at the planes, trying to clip their wing or their tail, anything that he might damage as many planes as possible and render them unfit to fly. Finally, the exasperated Japanese squadron took off in another direction. So deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter limped back to the carrier. Upon arrival, he reported in and he related the events surrounding his return. And he had, was one of the uh, planes that actually had a camera mounted on his dash. And from that camera, they were able to tell the tale. It, it showed the extent of all the things that he did to protect his fleet. He had, in fact, destroyed five enemy aircraft. Now, that happened on February 20th, 1942. And for that action, Butch became the Navy's first ace of World War II and the first naval aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. A year later, Butch was killed in aerial combat at age 29. His hometown would not allow the memory of his, their World War II hero to fade, and today, if you go to O'Hare Airport in Chicago, you'll find his tribute between Terminal 1 and 2. It's named after him. So now, what do those two stories have in common? Well, Easy Eddie was Butch O'Hare's dad. And I tell you that this morning to say this, it's never too late. It's never too late. I read some more reading on Easy Eddie this week, and, and some articles try to say that, well, the only reason he turned uh, state's evidence against Capone is because he saw the writing on the wall and everything else. But you know, I'd like to also believe that he wanted to leave something better for his son than what he had done. He knew it was going to cost him his life no matter what he did. And his son somehow, through all that his dad had done, picked up something better and became the man that they actually named Chicago's airport after. Dad, it's never too late. Mom, it's never too late. It's never too late. You don't have to sit, cry over what happened in the past and all your failings in the past. We don't live there. We don't live there. We live today and forward. We own the past, but we don't live there. 
right? We own it, but we don't live there. Does that sound pretty CR? We take ownership for it. We repent of it, but we don't stay there. We don't live out of that. We move forward. All right, hear me this morning. I want everybody to stand here today. And I'm going to ask all the dads in this place to come on up to the front this morning. I'm not going to belabor this very long. I just, I need you to come on up here this morning. All led by the best dad in the house. I know he's the best dad because it says right on his medallion, best dad ever, right there. <laughs> oh, best dad ever. Oh, there's, I got the two best ones right here this morning. Best one and best two right here. Come on up, dads. Crowd up to the front. I used the order this morning. You can get close. It's okay. Let me uh, get up here so I can see you all. All right, guys. I want you to understand something. You are very, very important. Did you know that if a child comes to Christ, his whole family will follow them in a confession of Christ only about 3 to 4% of the time? If a mother in a household comes to Christ, the whole family will follow somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20% of the time. But if a father comes to Christ and he leads his family, uh, that it's like something like 80-90% of the time the family will follow Christ. That's not, because we're, that, that's not because we're better than women. I think we all know that's not true. <laughs> it's because God gave us a place of spiritual authority that when we exercise it in a healthy way, it produces great fruit. It's as simple as that. However, here's the startling thing. If we exercise it in an unhealthy way, if you talk to kids about where their rebellions are in, especially PKs, pastor's kids, most of their anxiety is usually focused on dad, not mom. Why? Because it's up to us to do something right. It's up to us to set the standard. It's up to us to live it every day. It's a great responsibility because every privilege, every ability comes with great responsibility. So if God gave us a great ability of influence as fathers, and along with that comes a great responsibility as a father, right? We're the ones that have to lead the way. I'm not suggesting that you have to do this, you have to do that. I'm suggesting that you be a man, first of all, of integrity. Financial integrity, uh, word integrity, action integrity. I'm not saying you got to, you know, get your kids all around the dinner table every night and read 16 chapters of Scripture and all that kind of stuff. Probably not going to go over real big if you make that shift right away. Uh, you know what I'm saying? But I am saying that you need to be the one that when they have a problem that they know they can go to and that you're going to pray with them. You need to be the one who's going to instill those values and interpret the word through your actions to them every day. You've got to be the one who shows them what it is to live a life off of the word. That's what you need to be able to do. And however you do that, it's a pretty wide open spectrum on how you're going to accomplish that mission. But God's called you to do it. That God's called you to do that. And it doesn't matter. You might be standing here this morning, dads. You might be feeling like, I have blown it so many times, pastor. You have no idea. Yeah, I do, because I know how many times I've blown it. So when you blow it, what are you going to do? Own it. I remember one time I yelled at Derek because he wasn't there to help me, and I was yelling at him, and he, I was saying, get up here! What are you doing? I called you three times! 
I'm on the phone in a job interview, Dad. <laughs> Instant humility that moment right there, let me tell you. So I had to own that one. I had to apologize. Tell him next time, let me know you're having an interview first. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I remember another time, I don't know why I got these stories with Derek. Another time, I, I got, how many, how many love Ritz crackers with a little cheese in the middle? You love those things, right? I love those things. I told the story only once before, and I got 13 boxes of crackers given to me afterwards. You don't need to do that today, all right? I'm trying to lose weight. But anyway, uh, those, little, those little teeny crackers about this big with a cheese in the middle, you guys know what I'm talking about? Man, oh man, they're good. And I had a box of those, and, and I come in, and, and Derek's sitting at the, at the island in our kitchen, and he's eating my, he's eating my Ritz crackers, my, my little treat. So I sat down, I said, what are you doing? He goes, these things are good. And I said, give me those. And I went to take the box from him, and he punched me in the face. That's a good cracker right there. I'm like, you little jerk. I grabbed him right by the scruff and that picked him up off that stool and slammed that boy down on the floor. And I said, what do you think you're doing? And he starts laughing. And he said, I said, you punched me in the face. He goes, no, I didn't. He said, you pulled the box and I let go. And he goes, and you punched yourself in the face. <laughs> I'm like, instant humility again. I picked him back up, sat him on the stool, said, sorry, son. Now give me my crackers, <laughs> you know. <laughs> See, he didn't leave the church over. He didn't run away. He didn't say, how dare you be so imperfect? No, because you own it. You teach your children to own it. You say, I'm sorry, that was really stupid, and boy, do I feel dumb now, but I have a story I can tell for the rest of my life. We need to be able to do that, folks. And your kids will forgive you all kinds of stuff if you can own it and not make it their fault. It's not his fault that I got smucked in the face. It's my own fault. Crackers shouldn't mean that much to anybody. <laughs> Are you hearing me? They shouldn't be that important in your life. You see, we got to own this stuff. And then once you own it, then you have to work at being better at it. Hello? You got to own it and repent. You got to ask for forgiveness you got to empower them to forgive you, and then you have to do what repentance really is, which means go in the other direction, 180 degrees, the opposite way. Walk away from it. So I'm, I don't know what your legacy is. I don't know where your situation is. All I'm here to do to tell you today is it's not too late. If, if Easy Eddie was able to, even as his life ended in, in gunfire, his son was able to see he finally did something right, his son was able to take that legacy and become an honored war hero. It's never too late. Never too late. You can do something with it today. So I want you to just take your right hand and put it like this over your heart and then put your left hand over top of it. That's right. Right hand over your heart because on your left hand side kind of, right? Put your left hand over top of it. That's good. I just want you to repeat this after me. Lord Jesus, Jesus, I've failed before before, and I will likely fail in the future. And so I confess to you today, I need your help. I want to be a better dad. I'm a good dad. I want to be a better dad. I need your help. I ask you to forgive me. And I own all that I've done. And I ask you to empower me 
to ask forgiveness of my children where I need to. To own things to them as I've harmed them. I ask for your grace today so that I can be the man you've called me to be. Mold me, shape me into your son. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's give the Lord praise this morning. I apologize for keeping you late this morning. Um, I found out that I can preach longer without the slides. That's, that's <laughs> incredible. I thought it would be shorter, but no, that's not true. Um, I want you to remember those stories today. They're absolutely true. I want you to be blessed by it. I want you to recognize that God has a great purpose for you as a dad. And uh, for you moms, and uh, this all applies to you too. And, and for those of you who don't have children, it doesn't matter. Spiritual dads, spiritual moms, some of my greatest work to come is yet to happen, and it's going to be spiritual dads, it's going to be a spiritual mom. We're going to accomplish things even, that are going to blow our minds even more as we move forward. And then our kids will get to do the same, et cetera, et cetera. Are you hearing me? Turn the person beside you to leave this morning and say, I'm not perfect, not perfect. but I'm getting there. But I'm getting there. <laughs> Amen. God bless you. Enjoy your steak this afternoon. Have a great day.